All right, guys, we are about to get started, so go ahead and find your seat, get your seconds, do what you got to do. Uh, today, so we only have, we're going to do Deuteronomy 31 today, then um, 32, 33, 34. Let's get into the book. So we're on the home stretch, and we'll be done by the holidays, by Christmas. But <clears throat> today, so I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and got to spend it with friends and family. Um, Thanksgiving, and then there's always Black Friday, and then there's whatever Sunday's called, and then there's Cyber Monday. Today is Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday is a time when you reflect on all of the rank consumerism that you indulged in, <laughs> and then, that we all did, and then decide, okay, I bought all this junk for me, let me actually pass some forward. Uh, it's, it's a day that nonprofits all over the country, all over the world, um, ask people to give to have because of their thankfulness. And Disciple Dojo, this ministry is a nonprofit, and I echo those sentiments as well. If you're on Facebook, Facebook is doing a thing where Facebook and PayPal are matching up to like, I don't know, $7 billion worth of donations, but that'll be sprinkled among however many nonprofits. So I'm not expecting that they're going to throw a big chunk our way. But if you do decide, if you'd like to give to Disciple Dojo, we are a registered 501c3 nonprofit recognized by Facebook. So just type in Disciple Dojo and you can give any amount. And if you do it today, they will, I don't know how they're going to work the math out, but um, we have a fundraiser going on right now. And so goal, I set an audacious goal, trying to raise $5,000 uh, to get us into next year. Got a lot of stuff happening that we'd like to see done. I don't even think we're going to get close to 5000 I'd love to be proved wrong, but if anybody wants to help prove me wrong, you can uh, give online if you're on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, you can go to the website, discipledojo.org, and there's a donate link at the top. And we are so dependent on monthly donors especially, um, but any, any amount always it helps. So just know that everything, all of the teaching, all of the videos, all of this weekly thing that you come to, the archives that we have online, the refugee ministry that I do, all of that, 100% nonprofit. We don't charge for any of our resources. Uh, I just saw a popular TV preacher is about to start a $19 a month subscription Bible study plan like Netflix, and I just shake my head and think, oh dear Lord, if there's anything that, that's peddling the gospel, I can't think of something more than that. Uh, we don't ever want to peddle the gospel at Disciple Dojo. Always, the Bible is to be taught and given away freely. But the flip side is, we got to eat and pay rent and have a place to live. So um, if you're blessed by the ministry, this teaching, this podcast, this launch study, any of it, uh, just consider consider us. We're a tiny little one-person nonprofit. I say we because it makes me sound like it's a bunch of us, but it's really me. Uh, but we could definitely use uh, your help because we are trying to grow, trying to expand the kids program that I teach right now, one class a week, 90 minutes. I'd like to double that into two classes a week. I'd like to also split the kids up because right now I'm teaching six-year-olds and 21-year-olds in the same class. That's really tough. So anyway, these are just a lot of things going on. Check out DiscipleDojo.org. If you're on Facebook, Disciple Dojo, D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E, uh, D-O-J-O, Dojo. So let's get into the actual study while you're here, though, now that the Giving Tuesday spiel is out of the way. We're in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 31. We're at the end of this entire book, which is one giant ancient Near East suzerainty vassal treaty. Remember that. I've harped on it all year because I don't ever want you to forget that if you spend a year studying Deuteronomy with us. You should know if you're on Jeopardy, 
and they ask you, oh, what is Deuteronomy? And, or Deuteronomy? and you could say, what is an ancient Near East Covenant suzerain vassal treaty? Uh, because that's what it is. And at the, the way these treaties would work was after the treaties were given, signed, ratified, a meal was had, a ceremony was done, which we saw the last two weeks, the renewal of the vows is kind of the ceremony. Then copies would be made. And one copy would go back to the king and be in his temple palace, and the other copy would stay with the vassal and be in their palace or their temple or their, wherever they worshipped. So that both parties had copies of the contract. It's literally why we do carbon copy things. When you sign something and you get the yellow copy and they keep the pink copy and the white copy goes somewhere else. This is that, but in the ancient world. Well, Israel's king suzerain is living in their midst in their temple not in a faraway land so they make two copies as would be normal and then both copies are put into the holy of holies the ark of the covenant this is why there are two tablets the ten commandments are not five on one five on the other it's popular in art and in movies but it's not historically accurate it was two copies of the covenant and the suzerain's copy and the vassal's copy. And they were together and that was the whole point. The suzerain was going to live with and among the vassal. So it's massive theological significance when you think about incarnation. And uh, how far away the gods were. Like we saw last week. You know, People would have to think, oh I've got to go up to the heavens to find out what the gods want. Or I've got to swim the depths of the, the, across the sea to get the gods uh, direction for my life. And, and what God said last week was no, no, it's not up in the heavens so that somebody has to ascend it, and it's not across the sea so that somebody has to go get it. It's right here. It's in your midst. It's in your hearts. It was all the theme last week. So now the covenant has been ratified. It's been brought to uh, its completion, and it's going to now be, uh, God's going to make sure that it gets remembered in coming generations. So the first thing, the covenant mediator is about to die. The covenant mediator, the person who mediates the covenant, who makes the contract, who sets it into being, that was Moses. Moses is at the end of his life. So he's got to make the transition to the next covenant mediator, the next person that will enforce uh, Israel's standing as God's covenant people, and that is his protege, Joshua. So chapter 31, then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old. Just pause. Nobody in here is even close to 120 years old. I know some of you are pushing it a little more than others, but you still got a long way to go. If you ever want to reach Moses' age. The point is, think about this. When we met Moses four years ago, for some of you, in Exodus, he was a little baby, right? 120 years of his life. And it's, it's perfectly divided into three chunks of 40 years. 40 years growing up in Egypt. 40 years as a shepherd in the desert doing nothing but raising sheep. And then now 40 years leading God's people out of Egypt and shepherding them. So his whole life is this triptych uh, of, of God preparing and then actually using the last third of his life. You know, a lot of us are under the impression because, you know, movies, TV, everything makes us think that all the good stuff that happens in your life is when you're young, right? We value youth. You put stuff on your skin to keep looking young, right? Everybody wants to be younger. We're always looking for the newer model. I just had to upgrade my phone. I'm in the process of it. Why? Newer is better. Older is obsolete. That gets into our thinking, but that's not how God views it. Typically, not all the time, but in a number of cases, people's significance happens at the end of their lives or in the later parts of their lives. 
The idea of just doing everything important while you're young and then just coasting off into the sunset and the retirement, it's a very American idea, but it's not a very biblical idea at all. Um, there's, there's always, and I have to remind myself of this too, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at Moses' second stage in life. I just turned 40. So I'm about to be in the shepherd in the wilderness era, uh, if I'm tracking with Moses. But I have to remind myself, like, oh yeah, I don't have a family, I don't have kids, I don't have a wife. I've missed out on all that, you know, because that's what people get in their 20s and 30s. And this is a helpful reminder. Like, no, no, no. Moses' life was just getting started when he hit 40. And even when he hit 80, he was still moving into his, I mean, Moses, from what we know, Charlton Heston Moses, right? That Moses started at 80. So, you know, some of you in here are close to 80 or just on the other side of 80. You've still got some stuff to do. And that's the, one of the things to keep in mind when Moses is saying this at the end of his life, 120 years. It's a phenomenal age to live to, but it also shows that he was still leading his people. Until the day he dies, he is still leading his people. So remember that. I'm not saying don't retire if you've worked hard, <laughs> for sure. But just know that your retirement only applies to your employment, not to your kingdom use, and not to what you have to contribute spiritually in this world. But let's go on. He says, I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy those nations before you. You will take possession of their land. Joshua will also cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og, kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. We read about that in Numbers last year. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. This is to the Canaanites, who he has commanded them to drive out, to rid the area of their influence. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. There's going to be some tension in that statement. Because in just a minute, it's going to talk about God forsaking his people. But it's going to happen as a result of something that they do. But if they are being strong and courageous, if they are doing their end, if they are in relationship, this covenant relationship, he will never leave or forsake them. The only thing that can cause him to leave or forsake is when they leave and forsake the covenant. And that's a truth, again, that we have to hold in balance because it messes with our theology a little bit sometimes. But verse 7, then Moses summoned Joshua, said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. You must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. If you're about to lead tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, some people say in the millions of people into a land, and you're not that young, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're not that experienced, I should say. You were young. You're an old man now, but you're still not super experienced because Moses has been doing it all over time. It's going to be easy to be scared. And it's going to be easy to be discouraged. Those are two things that leaders probably face. Leaders, leaders probably face fear and discouragement more than anything else. Maybe loneliness would be the third. Uh, those are the things that, that leaders face that people who aren't leading never have to, will never understand the level of those things that people who are in positions of leadership hold. And so it's important to keep in mind that it shouldn't keep us from not seeking to lead when we're called to, but just to know when we are under somebody's authority, hey, they're probably dealing with fear, discouragement, and loneliness. So let's not compound that. <laughs> How can I alleviate that? And then if you're the leader as well, knowing that, hey, I am suffering from fear, discouragement, loneliness. What can I do 
to encourage myself to overcome this, to be a good leader and not let this overwhelm me. And it starts obviously with remembering what God said. That I'll never leave you forsake you. I'm here. It doesn't make it feel any less than only scared or discouraged in the moment. But it's the underlying truth upon which everything else builds. And Joshua's going to need it. This whole section, verses uh, 1 through 8, is a, a one-paragraph summary of what we're going to look at all next year. It's a one-paragraph summary of the book of Joshua. So if you want a sneak preview of coming attractions, read this paragraph. And then come back after Christmas because we're going to start Joshua. And we're going to see this all play out. So he goes to encourage him then. They've got to make this. This is where now the covenant's set. The leadership transition is made. Now you've got to make sure that this covenant doesn't get forgotten in the dustbins of history. It doesn't become a museum relic. It needs to be a living, active part of every generation in the life of Israel. So, verse 19, uh, yeah, verse 9. So Moses wrote down this law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year of canceling debts, remember every seven years, all debts would be canceled, slaves would be set free, the Jubilee thing, all the land would revert back, but, but the, the canceling of the debts was every seven years. Remember a Hebrew slave couldn't be a slave for more than seven years? This is going way back to Exodus, some of you aren't here yet. Um, but at every seven years, it's a special year, it's a Sabbath year. When the year for canceling debts, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkoth, the Feast of Booths, this is the time when Israel would come and they would celebrate the full bringing in of the harvest. They'd live in booths, they'd live in these tabernacle things that would commemorate their time living in the wilderness. And while they were bringing in the harvest of the land, and so it would be a time of celebration, but also a time of remembering the hardship from which they came, and that it was God who brought them out of that hardship. That's the point of the celebration of tabernacles, booths, Sukkoth, whatever you want to call it, is to remember, hey, we used to be wandering in the desert as ex-slaves. Now we're in this land and we are bringing in these crops and this produce and the bounty of the land. We are blessed. It's at that time that when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, then you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Every seven years. Wouldn't happen every year. Every year would be the festival of tabernacles. That's every year. Celebrate. It's like Thanksgiving. I mean, we just did celebrate Thanksgiving. This is Hebrew Thanksgiving. Only it's around bringing in the crops. Um, the full harvest. Thankful for what God did. Brought us out of Egypt. We lived as slaves in the desert. But we survived. We're here today. All this provision. At that time, every seven years. They're going to bring out the law. The Torah. The law of the covenant. What we've been reading. And that's going to be read out loud in the hearing of all the people. This is the bringing out in the regular reading of the covenant. Now, ancient treaties would do this. They might do it every year. They might do it every 10 years. They might do it every lifetime of every king, whatever. But it was common. Treaties made. Treaty will be periodically brought out and read so that all the parties of the treaty know what's going on and how they're to continue to live under that treaty. God's doing it with Israel, but he's centering it right at their time of celebration. Why? Because the entire reason that they will even be able to be in the land and celebrate is because of what happened in this covenant treaty. It's all part of it. It's all together. One big identity marker. <clears throat> so, verse 12 says, So assemble the people, men, women, children, and the immigrants living in their towns. 
So everyone, young, old, people just coming in and living but not being born there, everyone. Uh, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So at least twice every kid would have experienced this, right? Every seven years, so by the time they're 14. Um, So this is God's way of ensuring that his people will always know their identity as his people. This is part of why, to, to, to go on a quick tangent, it annoys me that we, and I say we as Christians, have forgotten or have sidelined the practice that still is prevalent in synagogues of just reading out loud scripture. I'm not talking about a verse. I'm not talking about a psalm before the sermon or before worship. I mean just long periods of reading out loud and people hearing as they're gathered together the words of Scripture. We, we don't do that. If, you, if your church does that, you are the exception that I've never heard of. Churches today, no, what do we do? We've got an anthem, we've got a doxology, or if we're modern, we're going to do some worship songs, then we're going to have an announcement, there'll be maybe a cool video bumper, somebody may bring out some incense if it's old school church, whatever. The practices vary from denominations, but have you ever, is there anything in your church where somebody just stands up and says, listen, here is the letter to Titus, and then reads it out loud? But everybody, nobody had Bibles back then, that would put everybody to sleep now. It would put everybody to sleep then. It's still having to sit and listen. (laughs) And there's no air condition or pews. (laughs) The point is that we assume today, because because there are such things as printed Bibles, that everybody is reading. And that's not the case. People aren't reading them. But there's also something, again, corporately, that's the whole reason we come together to worship. It's a corporate thing, right? We're not an island. We are the people of God. So... This isn't to say that churches are all wrong. I mean, I'm born and raised in the church. You know, the point is, though, that this is showing an aspect where we as churches, we as Christians, maybe we could find a way to bring this back somehow. Maybe if it's a Bible study. Maybe if it's like what we do here. I mean, we pretty much just read. I mean, I talked to you a little bit about it. But we read all the words of Scripture out loud together, at least, yeah. and are hearing it as we come. So just it's something to think about because it is, it's, a lost, it's a lost thing. It's very rare. Somebody gets up to read something in church. Usually it's a verse or two, and they kind of mumble through it and don't know how to pronounce the names or whatever. But it's very rare that there's care. You go to a synagogue, there's a cantor. A cantor. Their job is to read out loud the text. And they're reading Numbers, Leviticus. You know, they're reading Torah. It's not like they're reading the action verses. Um, So the point is that that's something that in the Old Testament, at least, and today our Jewish friends still have maintained. Whereas Christians, we kind of let it slide a little bit and and maybe there's ways that we can bring it back but moving on that's the whole point though is that as a people together collectively we're hearing the word of god for us and how we're to live in light of it that's what this is ensuring that every generation now we've seen a preview of the book of joshua now we're about to get a preview of the book of judges verse 14 the lord said to moses now the day of your death is near Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. 
Then the Lord appeared in, at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. This is God actually showing up. Why? Because something very important is happening. There is a changing of the mantle of leadership that's about to take place. And just as God appeared as a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire at the events of Mount Sinai, and at key moments in Israel's national life, once again we see this theophany. God is appearing again, manifest, physically appearing in a way uh, and this communicates to everyone watching at a distance. There's a pillar of cloud, and it's settled right over this tent of meeting, and Joshua and Moses are right there. This is really important. We should probably pay attention to them. You know, that's what would have the mindset that would have conveyed. So, <clears throat> verse 9, 16, And the Lord said to Moses, You're going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They'll forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day, I'll become angry with them and will forsake them. Did you see that tension? Remember that in the previous? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Except, remember this. You always have to avoid taking a verse out of the Bible and making it your life verse. Because it's not written in verses. All these numbers were never in the text originally. God's I will never leave you or forsake you is contingent. On Israel remaining his covenant. He will never leave or forsake his covenant people. But if his covenant people turn away and forsake him, they've removed themselves from the covenant promises and the covenant assurances, then there is nothing but God's forsaking them. This is a, a truth that may mess with some of your theology. We all come from different denominations. Uh, but just that's what this text is saying. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But there's an implicit unless, and we read it in this paragraph. Now, this is why we always have to read scripture in context, not just a verse here, a verse there. So he goes on. What? Oh, he listen to what he says. They will forsake me, break the covenant I made with them. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them. And they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day they will ask. Have not these disasters come upon us. Because our God is not with us. And I'll certainly hide my face on that day. Because of all their wickedness. And turning to other gods. Now, this is Judges. Joshua is the triumphant book. When we read Joshua next year. You're going to be like this is awesome. God's doing everything he said. And then you're going to turn the page. And Judges is going to be like. Yeah but the people didn't do anything that God told them to. And you're going to be like, oh, this is what that looks like. This is a weird tension that the Old Testament presents us with that we need to hold. Is that, that God's actions with his people are very reciprocal in some aspects. But underneath that, there's this overlying, what we just saw last week. After that rebellion, after that forsaking, if there's repentance, then there's restoration. And so the forsaking is real, but it's not permanent. It's not the total, the end goal in the big picture of things. But for individual Israelites, it may very well be. And this is where that dynamic comes in. God has a plan for his people as a collective. But individually, the person has to respond and walk in faith with God in order to experience any of that blessing or promise. If they don't, there is no promise that they're going to be dragged into the blessing. 
This is this again. I'm treading lightly because there's half of you are probably like, amen. The other half are like, wait a minute. Uh, depending on your theology. And this divides Christians. I, so I'm trying to just let, <clears throat> I'm trying to let it trickle out into your theology however it will. But without saying, now therefore, this is what you have to believe. Just whatever you believe, just keep in mind, you've got to read this whole text. And this is what God's telling his people. And <clears throat> verse 19, he says, now, he's going to not just say, now, I know you're going to disobey me. He's going to give them advanced proof that they're going to disobey him. So that when they do disobey him, this will have been written and stand there as a judgment upon them. And he's about to do it in the form of a song, a memorable song. So he says, now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites. Have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. And when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they're disposed to do. Even before I bring them into the land, I promised them on earth. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. So there's a song. This is, a, this is an I told you so in advance. And the, the theologians are wrestling with this because it raises questions of free will and you know, inevitability and all this stuff. What do we do with this? God's saying this is what's going to happen. So then it has to happen. This is again where we have to read the whole Bible. <clears throat> God will tell his prophets later. I believe Ezekiel, both, specifically Jeremiah. 18, I think. He'll say, when I say that a judgment is going to happen, that it's inevitable, there's a condition in that. And the condition is, if the people hear that judgment and, are, and fear the consequences and turn to me, then I'll relent from that judgment. So the stating of the inevitability of judgment is itself what God intends to keep people from going down the path that will lead to it. In other words, it's stated as this is going to happen. This is inevitable. You are turned from God. And now because you're turning from God, this is what you can expect. That in of itself, in a weird way that doesn't quite make sense to us and how we think we teach people, that's what God put in place as a constant warning to his people not to go down that road. If you go down this way, certain death. And it was stated in such stark terms as if to be inevitable. But the whole point of stating it that way in God's desire, in God's heart of hearts, we find out from the prophets, is set so that they might turn and live rather than perish as predicted. And how that works with our time-bound minds, that's where we get into predestination, free will, determinism, all that kind of stuff. But scripture just lets it stand. And God is giving his people this warning. And he's basically saying, this, and he's telling Moses, hey Moses, this is what's going to happen. So just be ready. So that when it does happen, there's no excuse that they could have said, no, we didn't know this would happen. We accidentally worshipped Baal and sex orgies on mountaintops. My bad. <laughs> like the people can't say that. God's like, no, no, no. You've known all along this is what's going to happen. And yet you still did it. 
When instead, every Israelite hearing this song that we're going to see next week should listen to the song, read the song, and go, I will never go down that road. Even if my people do, even if future generations do, I will stand and serve the Lord. That's what it's meant to inspire. And so he goes on and says, verse 23, The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun. This is one more time, reiterating Joshua's leadership before the song is presented. Be strong and courageous. For you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. We've talked about stiff-necked, how that comes from animals. Agricultural, you try to lead a horse and it right God's trying to lead his people here's the pastures here's the good land here's the blessing and the people are like no I want to go eat this dirt that's the image of what God's doing here I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are if you've been rebellious against the Lord while I'm still alive with you how much more will you rebel after I die (laughs) the answer is a lot assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so I can speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to testify against them for I know (laughs) that after my death You are sure to become utterly corrupt and turn away from the way I've commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall upon you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger by what your hands have made, which would be the idols and the practices. So Moses is now saying, listen, guys, I'm about to die. I wish I could give you good news, but you've been stubborn with me from day one and you're only going to get worse after I die. So gather around and listen up because this is what's about to happen. The hope is that the people hearing that will no, Moses, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to do, we're going to start, we're going to do better. But God's omniscience knows that that's not what the people are going to do. And so Deuteronomy then will stand for future generations as a constant witness against the people. That's why I said, I call heaven and earth. As witnesses against you. At the end of a suzerain covenant lawsuit, you would call the witnesses. You would call the gods of the sea, the gods of the air, the gods of the storm, the gods of the vine, the gods of this, the gods, all of these as witnesses to this covenant. God is saying, No, I'm the only God, so I'm calling all creation, heavens and the earth, as my witness against you. And I'm going to write it down, and it's going to be in a specific, specific format called a reeve, which is the word for covenant lawsuit. And the song is going to be structured around this concept of a covenant lawsuit. So that Israel, every generation, will have basically a prosecuting attorney saying, look at what you're doing. You're breaking the covenant. Turn or burn, (laughs) to borrow Jonathan Edwards. Um, That's what the the song that we're about to read. So it's not like a pretty song. It's not going to be like Miriam's song by the sea or Moses' song of deliverance. It's going to be almost like a funeral dirge or or a, a lament. But it's going to portray Israel's history and what they can expect and what they should be committed to not letting happen, even though it's happening. And how that works, God, free will, predestination, all that, there's much more in Scripture you have to take into account to work all that out. But we don't have time because we're done now. So you guys have a great week. Next week, the song. And after the song, final two chapters. And then we're done. See you guys next week.